We're starting today a fresh series that I think is going to piggyback on a bit of what we've been doing, but it is also brand new. Uh, how many of you were here when we talked about the, the decade of 2020 on the Hebrew calendar being the decade of the mouth? Nobody. Great. Or no one wants to contribute. That means that this will be a fresh message all the way around. Good. Um, I'm actually going to put this... I don't like to put my Bible on the floor, but at least I know what it is. Uh, we've, we've been... We've been mentioning, at least at the beginning of the, the year, 2020, that this decade is significant. Um, I don't like to get too weird with numbers and dates. I know some of you do, and God bless you. <laughs> some of you have a date and a memory for, for everything under the sun. I must say, when, when I highlight a date beyond like my, my, my wife's birthday, anniversary, and so forth, it means it's significant because, in general, like, I don't get super... like attached to dates. But I thought it was, it was very profound that the last decade we've, we've had was the decade of, of uh, the eye, of seeing. And that this decade on the Hebrew calendar is the one of uh, the mouth and of declaration. And we've been stirred as we've been asking the Lord just some of the things that we're meant to highlight, particularly at the beginning of this year, is, is our mouths. And so this morning, we're starting a series on the significance of our, of our mouth. I already can't remember the, the title I gave it. The Decade of Declaration, Transforming Power of Your Words. And, and so what we're doing is we're asking the Lord to, to kind of stir up some things. I don't know if there's a single person in the room, and certainly maybe not a believer in the house, that doesn't understand the significance of the words that we say being really important. But what I want us to do today is to start to tap in to the reality that God wants us to go back to simple things and light them on fire. Revival and renewal is never God putting his hand on something brand new. It's him putting his hand on something that he's always had his hand on in a fresh way that stirs people back to first things, like children. And I think that we have a profound opportunity to take hold of the purpose of our lips, of our mouth, and our agreement with heaven. And that starts with the Word of God anchoring us in a fresh way. I have a, a fun little stat that I was um, made aware of this week. I'll move this because I, you know, I don't always move towards you, but when I do... I want to step with purpose and make sure, yeah, you're paying attention. Yeah. Um, but there, there was a, a study done. I heard this from Scott Lindsay, a recent study from the Center of, of Bible Engagement. And they said this, may this convict you a little bit, because it convicted me. Um, I'm not under the impression that all of you wonderful people that love God's Word uh, spend time in it every day. In fact, I think in the busyness of life, often weeks go by and maybe you were, couldn't remember when you spent time with the Lord in His Word, uh, besides maybe on Sunday morning, if you were even there. I'm just kidding. Um, no one is that, that's supposed to be funny. My cold, I have a cold. I'm not making fun of you. Just lighten up, people. I've, I've been sick for three weeks except on Sundays, which is also God's provision. And I'm a little loopy because I took drugs from very early this morning. So saddle up. It's going to be fun. Okay. So this is what this study said. They had 40,000 people that they asked these questions and that they engaged with, asking them how they engaged with Scripture. And here's the thing. 
If you had just one time a week that, that you spent time in the Word, maybe even including Sunday morning, that had almost no effect on key areas of your life. So going to church once a week and then doing nothing else with the Word of God and Scripture had almost no effect on your life. The same happens if there was two times a week that you spent time um, in Scripture in some way, shape, or form. At three times a week, it was like the dead, lifeless graph had like a boop, a blip. There was like a sign of life, but almost nothing. You would think, right, that, that like it'd be one time a week and it would be like a gradual increase. There was no gradual increase. It was just flatlined, then a boop at three. And then here's the amazing thing. At four times a week, spending time in the Word, profound impact happens. It literally spikes off the charts. This is what happens. Feeling lonely drops 30% with just four times a week in the Word. Anger issues drop 32%. Bitterness in relationships, whether that's just the hardest relationship you have, your marriage or your kids, parents, whatever, coworker, 40% bitterness in relationships drops just four times a week in the Word. Alcoholism, 57% drop. <laughs> Feeling spiritually stagnant drops 60%. Keep in mind, they're not even saying, did you do a good job in the Word? Did, did you even draw out sound theological principles? None of that. Just spend time in God's Word, 60% drop in spiritual stagnancy by just getting in the Word four times a week. Viewing pornography drops 61%, spending time in the Word. Sharing one's faith catapults 200% by those who spend four times a week in the Word. Why? Because there's a confidence that's developed in our spirits. When we get His Word in us, it affects our words and it affects our output. Discipling other people jumps 230%, which is four times a week in the Word. The reason why we call it the Word of God is because God gave us this profound gift, yes, of life itself and all creation. But with a Word, He spoke things into existence. And His Word, the Scriptures are, throughout human history, our account of God's word to mankind, his promises, how he anchors us, how he sustains us, what he thinks about us, what he's doing on earth with us is in his word. And when we spend time in it, just think about this. You can come to church one day and you need three more times. Meaning if you try every day, you can screw this up 50% of the time and you are still going to be off the charts. I just want to stir your spirit a little bit. So, so, as we get in the Word today, that'll count for one this week. You got three more times this week to start a new habit. We're also in the Lenten season. Lent started at Ash Wednesday this past Wednesday. Many people fast many things over Lent or, or do something. You give up something for the best thing. I encourage you, do something in Lent Right now, between now and Easter, that's the Lenten season, 40 days. And it's meant to, to remember the 40 days that Jesus had in the wilderness. Go into that wilderness with the word. Let it wash you. 
and see if there's not profound impact in your life by Easter. Amen. Okay. So here's uh, what, what I want to do. I want to remind us that our mouths are significant. They're powerful. There's strength in our words. Our, our words have, have profound, profound impact to do good or to do harm. And we need to remember that we've got what many would call a loaded gun attached to our mouths. Uh, many of us might remember, just think for a moment, you all have that, that couple things that kids at school said to you that you'll never forget that really felt awesome. Uh, I can remember a couple things my childhood Someone called my boots. I, I got my dad's really cool old dress shoes. I could finally fit into them because my dad's not as big as I could. I don't remember how old I was, but I could fit in my dad's shoes at a relatively young age. And someone called them witch boots. <laughs> witch boots. Okay, I remember more than that. I, don't, I have a horrible memory. It was Alan Moreland called my dad's boots witch boots. He was on the soccer team with me, jerk. I remember that the rest of my life. Couldn't wear those stupid boots anymore, and they were really cool. They probably could have sold on the internet for a lot of money these days. Super trendy and vintage, but they were called witch boots, and it stuck with me forever. That's kind of comical, but many of you have other stories. I think Sue has shared the story. Um, this was kind of jolting and beautiful at the early stages of our relationship, but um, there was this, this girl named Karen Kapelian, and uh, Sue had apparently, when they were super young, like lived in the same neighborhood. I, I don't know if I, what I remember is there was like things like piano lessons, like group piano lessons, and then her and a friend be under the table as there was someone in the other room, and they were like really going at Karen and making her feel horrible, even making her cry with their words. I forget what it was. And, and Sue even remembered how horrible she was to this girl. I guess they didn't go to school together or they didn't see each other much over the years, although there was like, I don't know, something in the neighborhood that they kind of had connection, families. And Sue, after I had met her, she hadn't spent very much time. She'd become a believer in, in college, and she'd gone home and hadn't spent much time at home as a believer. And so she goes to the local Presbyterian church where, where the woman that had been discipling her in the neighborhood went. And I don't know, it was very early on. We were dating at this point. And, and she... <laughs> I remember her, her calling or leaving a voicemail or texting them. We talked on the phone. She goes, you're not going to believe this. I'm like, what? And she goes, this girl that I was so horrible to, Karen Kapelian, goes to this church. I saw her, and I ran when I saw her across the room. <laughs> it's like, I know I have to do something about this. I feel so horrible. And I'm like, oh, baby, how old are you? She's, I forget exactly, but it was like definitely under eight years old. So, obviously, Karen doesn't remember, I thought. And, and so I'm, I'm kind of like, oh, I'm sure she doesn't even remember. Just, just go up and cut the ice and break the ice and it'll be fine, blah, 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 blah. And, and so she did. And, and uh, I wasn't there for this, but she, she recounts the story. And, and she, she goes up to her and, and kind of her, she'd been prayed up. I don't know, she probably fasted for the first time in her life for this. And she goes... She goes, Karen, I'm so, so sorry for what I did when we were kids. Would you ever forgive me? And, and Karen's response was like, yeah, you were really horrible to me. <laughs> she, didn't, she, didn't like, she didn't like paint a, a, a rosy picture over it. She's like, yeah, you were really horrible to me. But you know what? I prayed for you. I think it was one of those things, 
this story wasn't supposed to be this emotional. This was supposed to be the lighthearted one. Okay. <laughs> she was like, I, I prayed for you. She even had her mom there. So, so it was like her and her mom came over and, and, and were telling Sue the fact of like, we prayed for you every day from that point forward. It's going to be a long message if I can't make through the first stupid story. <laughs> okay. So, so the point is, there was fruit from someone receiving a bullet by the mouth. My wife shot some bullets. But that bullet got turned into a seed because of how she received it. It still hurt. It still stung. It still went deep. But she decided, by partnership with probably an amazing mother, that we're going to turn this bullet into a seed. And we're going to put that seed into a garden. We're going to sow seeds and seeds and seeds. And every time we felt pain from those words, from those bullets, we're going to sow more seeds. And I get to reap the benefit of those seeds that were planted. It's beautiful. But the reality is our words have the power to be bullets or to be seeds. And we, we use words as bullets when we, obviously, when we speak harshly. Gary Chapman wrote this book called Love is a Way of Life. And he goes, you, you use words as bullets when you speak harshly, criticize deeply, and you spread lies. We... we we leave hurt bodies in our, we, in our wake and we become living cemeteries. We sow graveyards wherever we go when we release bullets. On the contrary, when we plant seeds with our words, we speak love, encouragement, and give grace. We then nurture relationships. We grow people. We will eventually see good crops around us and we will be encouraged ourselves. Our words can grow people or our words can shoot them down. Now, at the same time, it's really easy for those of us that have been not the Sue's at a young age, but the Karen's from a young age. And maybe you've not been those who are mowing people down with horrific words. But I think that there's just as much damage that can be done when you miss the opportunity to use words to build. When you allow there to be nothing said when there should have been something said. <laughs> uh, you want one more story from the lunchroom growing up? Thanks, I will, I'll share it. Uh, I still remember, I was, i be honest with you, I got pretty good at this at times before I hit puberty and, and got insecure for a few years. But before puberty, this might have been after, I can't remember. Um, there, we were at the, in the lunchroom, this was, I had the same guys I spent lunch with almost the same way from third grade through 12th grade because it, uh, it was a private Christian school. And uh, there was one day, Zach Spurgeon, who's on the basketball team with me, a uh, popular kid, lost his dad, actually, at a, at a young age in, like, seventh grade. And then he transferred in in eighth grade. His mom was the English teacher, Nancy. It's amazing, my memory, until I hit about, like, college. And then it's just all gone. I don't know what happened. But, but I can remember everybody's names and faces and whatever else from, from below that age. And so, Zach, good kid, he had no filter. Maybe it's because he didn't have a father after a certain age, but he, he turned to Brian Maccabee, one of our friends that we ate lunch with every day. And he, one day he's just staring at him. He's like, Maccabee, you are so ugly. <laughs> and it was like the most genuine, like he wasn't even trying to be mean. He legitimately was just looking at him. I'll be real honest. 
Brian wasn't the best looking guy. And, <laughs> and he literally said that out of like, kind of like, I'm just observing this. It's amazing like how unattractive you are. Like he kind of said that without even trying to be mean. Guess what that probably did to Brian? I don't know, but I cut Spurgeon off and, and I completely reamed him out in front of everyone and I, I actually tried to shame him. And I started making fun of his horrific haircut. He did have a really weird haircut. Zach did, not, not Brian. I tried. I did my best and I told Brian, that's a lie, Spurgeon, you're an idiot, blah, 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 blah. I don't know if that made any difference, but maybe it made a small difference. And one of the things I'm trying to teach my kids is not to blame other people when they start spewing bullets. We've had a bit of this in our household of late, where, where the kids are, are, they don't mean it sometimes, especially like the young ones. And they say things and they're super hurtful. And I'm trying to teach my kids both the power of their hurtful words and also that you're not just innocent if you didn't say anything or if what you said wasn't as bad as someone else or anything else. You have the opportunity to sow words of life and to correct when you make a really bad mistake. There's grace on all of it, if my wife's story didn't teach you that. And so we need to be a people that, that are, obviously we confront the really harsh, you know, horrible things, horrible stories, but we also need to be those who learn to not just bypass the opportunities. I think in marriages, the thing that I probably am guilty of the most in my most intimate relationship is not what I say because my tongue is pretty good at holding back what I shouldn't say. But often I punish those closest to me by withholding then the things that are needed to be said. So instead of moving towards them in the place of pain, because when they say something towards me, it's a trigger for them, they're triggered, but it should trigger me to see, oh, they're operating out of pain. Therefore, I need to move towards them, and I need to sow the opposite seed. And when I don't do that, and I remain silent, sure, is being silent better than me, like, adding to it and, and starting a war? Yeah. But that's a ridiculously low standard of life, isn't it? And what I want to encourage us in is we're the people that aren't just to maintain this stupid low standard of just not contributing to the words that sow discord, but to be those that literally go to battle with the opposite spirit. And there's something in us where you're only at kind of like halfway when you just keep your mouth shut. When you just keep your mouth shut at work because that person just bothers you so much, I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just going to separate. I just need some space. Maybe you do need some space. That's maybe the starting line. If you've been contributing... Give yourself some space and chalk it up as a victory if you just kept your mouth shut, if you haven't been. The next step is that you start sowing words of life and encouragement, and, and you start sowing the opposite spirit. And so that's where I want us to start from. Um, and what was the other thing I wanted to say on that? Here's, here's the thing. There's the reality that when you put a certain amount in, in your bank of investment of words, certain things come out. Uh, I'm going to share this at the end. I meant to share it at the end, but I'm, I'm just going to share it now. Um, we're going to use the marriage relationship as a relational example. Not, so it applies to everyone. It's just that, is there anything more intimate in life than a marriage relationship? Probably not. It's why 
Christ marries the church because it's the picture of that most intimate relationship. And in that, studies have shown that there's a significant difference of, of couples that stay together long-term and don't get divorced, where those that stay together, only five out of 100 comments are negative. But if you just increase five more negative comments out of 100, 10 out of 100, the marriages don't last. On one end, it's like, oh, it's just five more comments out of 100. Hmm. It's sobering. It's, but it's doubled the amount of negativity, five to 10. So on one level, it should be hopeful. You actually are saying double the amount of negative things to your spouse. And I don't know how they calculate how many out of 100 it is, but I'd like to encourage each of you to think about the type of exchanges you have with your spouse. Negative and positive isn't always like I yelled at them or, or I told them they were terrible at life or this or that. It can be simply things like, if you think of just 10 examples of your interaction, maybe just before work, and, and I can think of some days where it's just like, instead of good morning, I'm like, did you make any coffee? That's not positive. It's not maybe positive or negative. My tone often probably comes out when I haven't had coffee. I'm guessing that came, comes out negative. So there's, there's definitely one potential one. Next one. I need to go to the bathroom. Can you get out of the bathroom? Too negative. <laughs> really, really easy to get to. to. Please hurry. Or maybe not even please. Sometimes I don't say please because the hurrying needs to happen a lot faster. So... Then, then, then there's maybe reminders of the time and being late. There's, did, did you make the kids lunch? There's, did you remember we have this meeting? And all of a sudden, I'm like, I can just think of like, it doesn't mean we could even have not had one negative thought towards each other or even been in a fight of any kind. But I've just at least put in the atmosphere, not positive affirmations, just kind of like somewhat, not critique, but they're not sowing any life. Are you with me? It's pretty easy to get to that 10 a day. It is. Uh, and, th and think about that most stretching relationship if you're not married. How easy is it to, to get in a place where everything that's coming out is just maybe like factual survival, not uplifting, not with a positive spin. We're just trying to survive. That, that, the studies show, is sowing absolute death. Now, what I would like to propose is that we probably can't make progress on this by just acknowledging that that's a problem and just doing better. We have, we have to acknowledge that there's some inner work that has to happen. Can somebody say amen? amen. Mm -hmm. mm. Thank you. Okay, so... Psalm 100 um, says this. I want to get into our, our keys to connection because I'm, I'm going off script already. Keys to connection. So it, it takes, uh, to, just to, to put it in where, where we're going, we've, we've acknowledged the fact that we have strength and there's power in our words, right? Um, but the key today that I want us to land on is that we need to grasp the key to connection. If you remember what we shared, uh, I don't know, about a month ago on human needs. We have three core human needs, meaning, community, and freedom. We're overabundant in the freedom bin of our lives in America. And so we have a real craving for meaning in life. 
but we also have a real craving for community. And the key to community isn't just that we have one. It's that there's a connection that happens with God and with people. And so what we're getting at today is the connectors, the connections between God and with people, and how that actually fuels this place of deep need that we carry, that's this bank that the experts call community. And so you can be involved in the most wonderful church on earth, which I would like to think we're pretty above average because I like you people and what we're doing and what we're about. But it's possible that if we don't address these heart dynamics with God and with people in the connection frame, community can't actually flourish in that need for meaning. So connection to God. God is obviously creative. He created us in his image. And Genesis 2, 7 talks about how God breathed into man's nostrils and created a living being. That, that phrase for living being actually means speaking spirits. So why is that significant? It means that when we're created in his image, what gets lost in translation is that what just happened in Genesis, God created by his breath, by his word, there was power in his speaking. And by that same breath that he created mankind, humankind, men and women, there is this reality that we become in his image speaking spirits as well. And when we speak, we have spiritual authority and weight that what we speak carries something that isn't just dead and gone as soon as it comes out of our mouth. It carries with it the breath to destroy, to kill, or to breathe life. The enemy comes in in that, in that story in the garden, and the way he uses deception is through words. And agreement with those words brings ultimately a fall. And so what I want us to get at is that we're more than just physical, but we're spiritual. We are, we're the only species that can communicate our hearts, our dreams, our hopes, and our plans. Animals have no spirit and cannot communicate the deep things. That was quoting Robert Morris, who wrote this amazing um, book on the power of words, which I've, I've kind of used some of the inspiration for, for the structure of what I want to get at today. But if you want a book that, that goes into more depth, I just want to give him credit for that. It's really good. The enemy wants to keep you from a couple things. The enemy wants to keep us from gratitude and praise. Psalm 100 is that, that well-known psalm that says um, to, to come into his presence with singing, enter his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Really well-known psalm, right? Well, what happens when we've got singing, thanksgiving, and praise? These are all expressed through words and through the mouth. The enemy wants to keep us from declaring these words of gratitude and praise. Why? Because through the tongue, agreeing with thanksgiving and gratitude, it connects us to the Father. It connects us to God. How do we pray all day? How do we pray without ceasing as the superstar Paul did? Well, it's, it's not that hard. I, I want to break this mindset that that's like a super disgustingly way high achievement. That's supposed to be normal. And the normal aspect of praying without ceasing isn't if you're not praying without ceasing, you're a stupid, horrible Christian. The praying without ceasing is just the aspect of I'm continually looking at the lens of life through gratitude and thanksgiving, and I'm constantly giving God praise. When you're doing that, you're finding ways to connect yourself with your creator and seeing through his lens. When you see through his lens, you can speak through his lens. 
And I believe that that's the prophetic invitation from the last decade to this. We were meant to see, to be exposed in the last decade of the things of the kingdom, of his ways. And now we're being invited to partner with that and to start to decree it, to agree with it, to align with heaven. This connection to God allows us to hear his voice. It allows us to feel his promptings and have access to his power and ultimately be anchored by his peace. When we agree with his word, we're putting these things inside of us. We're aligning ourselves with what he says is true, and we're declaring to the rest of humanity and to the created order that this is the higher authority, this is what I live by, this is what I see, and therefore this is what I'm feeding myself, and that's what I'm going to say. That does not deny problems and issues at all. But it does, however, sow into the soil the answers to our issues and our problems. Potentially, what you sow today is the future answer to your prayer. But we often pray requests instead of partnership prayers. When you pray requests, you put God in a position where if he doesn't answer you, yes or no, how you want him to, then there's nothing put in the soil. When you pray from a posture of partnership with his promises, meaning here's what you say, God, and now I'm praying them, I'm releasing them over myself, I'm terrible at this, I suck at this, I therefore release that encouragement, the promises of what you say over me when I don't feel it, I don't see it, I don't know it, I don't see how this could ever be that I would live like this and be this kind of person, but I pray it over myself as a promise from you into myself from now into eternity. If I never get breakthrough, these seeds are released by my agreement with your word, my children will not walk in this in Jesus' name. That is what's called sowing seed into your future. That is partnering with the word. And that allows you to pray a problem without seeing the problem immediately resolved. We have no patience whatsoever. And we forget to tap in to see how he sees. When you tap in to seeing how he sees, when you don't get the breakthrough, you still see all the seed that you just scattered. That's encouraging because you know what went into the soil. There's not a farmer on earth that forgets where he planted seed. The issue is we're not planting seeds. The issue is not that we're not getting breakthrough. The issue is that we're not planting seeds. Are you a shooter or are you a sower? I hate little slogans like that, but I'm told they're helpful to remember things. Are you a shooter or are you a sower? Be a sower. Amen. Now, little reminder. The devil, he has very limited power. I desire to be a church where we don't give attention to the devil. We deal with him by reminding each other how limited his power is. Now, when someone is gripped by something or, you know, being freed or delivered or whatever... We don't ignore that. But we don't, we don't yell at the enemy. We don't go looking for demons under bushes. We remind each other of who we have and the power of his light and that the enemy simply uses deception to harm us. He uses lies so that we self-destruct and he wants ultimately us to use our mouths against ourselves. Because you know what? The devil doesn't have to do anything if your mouth will just agree with him instead of the father. 
So often we want the Father to take care of the devil, and what it really is needed is that the devil's not all that powerful. You just need to stop agreeing with him and start agreeing with your Father. When your agreement starts to align with truth, the lies that are causing havoc, it is impossible for them to have the same effect. Amen. Okay, so uh, turn to Romans 10, if you will, really quick. And Romans 10, uh, starting with verse 8, I want to read these verses over us. Where do we start with this? What scripture shall we start with in this pursuit? Uh, And maybe start with Romans 10. It's really good. Note all the places that have the word mouth, word, or call as I read. It says in Romans 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right, stop there. I'm not going to go into a teaching on this passage. I just want us to be reminded of the significance of the word, the mouth, and the call. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Meaning that everyone's invited, and your declaration of agreement of what Jesus has already done is the key for you to step in to the realm of salvation, of life, of the goodness that Jesus purchased. Your mouth is a decree. Your mouth is the beginning point. It's significant. Where do we start when we start this battle? Start with reminding yourself of this great salvation that we're a part of. This is what connection with God is. Our salvation was the original place that we got reconnected. Amen. Let's just let that simmer for a second. So what happens when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that he was raised from the dead? It's, a, it's an agreement. It's a confession. It's a place where we get into, where we are connected with the God of all humanity in the created order. And we enter into this realm called eternal life instead of eternal death. And all options change forever. But we still have to live in this tension between now and not yet. In this gospel of the kingdom that was Jesus' core message was all about not just enter into life, but what does it look like to enter into that life and then still live in a world where there is tensions that are pulling at either end. We live in that tension. We go after that tension. And one of the keys to that ongoing work of living in that tension is the beautiful act of confession. The Catholics have championed it, but most of of society has kind of like, oh, that whole like going into a box and confessing to a priest that might be a little shady. I don't know about that. But they're taking a biblical principle that is absolutely critical, confession. 
And it's not just confessing your sins. It's confessing your agreement. Ultimately, confession isn't just reminding somebody or telling them the sin that you did. That is a part, that is a part of confession that you can do, and it's good. But confession is agreement. Confession is all about truth, and you declaring you confess that as true. And when we pray truth, we are confessing to the spiritual realm all around us where our allegiance is. And that is the key to the work of living in the tension of now and not yet. If you will begin to do that with a fervor like never before, you will be a part of the statistics that show radical breakthrough. We will be a kind of church where they ask us what the key is to the type of people that seem to live and dwell here. And it's all about our connection to the Father. And these are the keys to connection. What disconnects us then? Well, Jesus gets super harsh with the things that disconnect. I don't have time to get into it because I'm already rambling. Matthew 12 is that passage. If you want to go there, you can go there. But I'm going to really quickly just remind us of what Matthew 12 is. Matthew 12 is that whole passage where Jesus is, is healing all these people. And so you're seeing, I was reminded of how this is a little different than I think I sometimes would have visualized it. This, this moment where Jesus talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit the context is, is that he's healing all these people. And I want you to think for a moment the type of people that are around. He's healing children that are crippled, that have never walked, and their parents are weeping because they were told by the Pharisees and the religious leaders that that was because of either the ch child's sin or their sin and that they were cursed. And now their child is running and happy and weeping, and the parents are weeping and the family's weeping, not just because the child is free, that's the amazing part, but because they have been declared not guilty. And blind eyes are opening and people are seeing color and light and trees and people's faces and their loved ones for the first time. And they're weeping and they're crying and they're having an encounter with the living God. And how can you be in that environment and your response is, this is of the devil? That's what the religious leaders said. They saw the work of God transforming lives and setting people free. And what came out of their heart was that this was of the devil. And then what Jesus' response was, that, that declaration exposes your heart, and that's the kind of thing that will send you straight to hell. Jesus didn't mess around. I want to be clear. This was not Jesus' core message, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It was when those who were meant to lead people to God, to connect them to God, are literally declaring the work of the enemy in darkness to the work of God himself. When your heart is able to say that, he goes, that, that kind of thing is the example of you blaspheming the spirit of God and there's no recovering from that. That's the worst kind of evil. He also says there's all kinds of other things you can recover from. And I think it's a good idea for us to remind each other of that. Is that he's basically saying you can screw up 
a whole lot. Any other sin you can think of, the most disgusting things that you can think of, adultery, sexual sin, perversion, drugs, abuse, all these things that, that, that just still like make us sweaty or make our skin crawl, anything you can think of, all that His grace covers. But when you can see the very work of God setting people free, and you can declare over that with your mouth that that's the work of the devil, you're already gone. That's what Jesus said. What I love about Jesus is what did he do in that moment? He developed a place of safety for all these people in their most vulnerable moment. In their most vulnerable moment, the religious leaders that had led them their whole lives are literally decreeing over them, this is a false work of freedom. And Jesus said, absolutely not. I will not have it. And he drew a line. And he said, you're on the wrong side of that line. And that's really good news. Because Jesus also protects the work of the Father. And none of you in this room would be here if you had fallen to that degree. So I've, I've met Christians that are actually worried about that they've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You haven't. You haven't. And Jesus would make sure you knew if you had. He's really serious about protecting his people. And in that same passage, Jesus talks about the, every idle word will be given account. I really wish he wouldn't have said that. Uh, because those are also kind of sobering words. Um, some translations say careless words. Some translations say idle word or something of that effect. And, and the reality is, is that Jesus also gives this sobering kind of template that every word that we say we're going to give an account for and that there's value on everything that comes out of our mouth. And so while there's grace to cover all of it, take account for every word that you say. And then re re when you get really discouraged... Remember, we have these amazing promises, like that he's, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Those promises are there to be able to go, that Jesus can walk in the tension and say, he's recording every word, and every time you come back to him, I push the erase button and cleanse you. Is there anyone else that needs to be reminded of that? I mean, every time I screw up, and I, I, I screw up all the time, and I, I say something too harshly to my son or to my wife or to somebody else, and I have to go and I have to approach them and cleanse it and clear it up. And then I have to remember the Lord has an erase button because what happens if I don't go back to him and allow him to remind me that he's cleansing that work, the enemy will remind me of that continually, and it will torment me, and it will shame me, and it will guilt me, and it will keep me bound up, and it will keep my voice from releasing life. So there's a process, and allow him to take you into that process. All right, I need to finish up and wrap up. Okay, so here's, here's how I want to close. Worship team can start coming up because I'm, I'm going to do this pretty quick. There's, there's a real... There's a real beautiful image in Scripture of, of the marriage covenant and connection to people. And what I want us to get is um, Proverbs 18, 20 to 22. It says this. I think I have that above, um, above it somewhere. 
There we go. I'm just going to read it from up there. From the fruit of their mouth, a person's stomach is filled. With the harvest of their lips, they're satisfied. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Amen. (laughs) Half the room is convicted. Half the room is like, that's right. All right, so I want us to remember when it comes to to marriage that death and life is in the power of the tongue. If you're not married, who cares? Every significant relationship, death and life is in the power of the tongue. When you forget this truth, you are literally separating yourself from the most pivotal place that you are meant to live out of. Five out of 100 interactions. That's all it takes for a relationship not to last. Five more life-giving statements. Five. And that picture is all about washing. You put that back up, yep. No, one more, one more, the Ephesians 5 one. Last scripture. Husbands, love your wives. I'm focusing on husbands because I'm trying to lead by example. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. If there's one image that you get today, it's that cleansing and washing in the word. Anchor yourself in the word. Wash yourself in the word so you can wash yourself and your most intimate relationships with those promises. Here's the takeaway, five things. Raise the standard of your connection and start with your mouth. Get the word inside of you. Four times a week. That's all it takes. When it's inside of you, your mouth can agree with something. When it's not in there, there's nothing for your mouth to agree with. Even your self-talk, what you mumble, what you utter even in your mind's eye that doesn't even come out, those mutterings will reflect what you put in. Start putting in good seed. This isn't just for others. This is the key to your own flourishing. Embrace the fact that this starts with yourself and then practice this on others. Because ultimately this will shift our entire perspective where we don't then have to have immediate results because we're completely aware that we've been sowing and planting seeds for a massive harvest with an expectation that the Spirit of God is going to water those seeds. My own wife is a testament to watered seeds. And so are every one of you. And our future depends on this. What if our future quality of life is merely determined by the words that we sow today? Bob, would you come up? I want you to share a bit of the testimony um, and work from last week. And then I want, 
Let's uh, minister into that a little bit. this morning in the worship um, it's always great but the Holy Spirit is just powerfully moving in our church and um, thank you God um, last week I shared that um, you know I, I'm going to use my words real carefully I have been subject to migraine headaches since I was a little guy um, and I said it was a generational assignment because it was. My grandfather had migraine headaches. My mom had migraine headaches. And for whatever reason, over the last 30 days, I've had three, one a week, unusually. Um, and I explained to uh, you that these are heinous. I get this aura in my left eye and I can't see. It's that uncomfortable, and I've got about 15 or 20 minutes to get the medicine in me. And without it, my head just explodes. It's incredible pain. And um, it's something that I've grown, I've let myself grow accustomed to. And Christian said something that ignited me um, before we went into prayer. He said, you know, so many of us have things in our life that we accept because there's a medicinal remedy or there's something that has been done to help you cope with this situation. But it was never intended that way when God made you that that would be your destiny in life. And, um, and so I received that word. I received that for me last week. And Tiffany had prayed for me so powerfully. And, and I felt in the middle of the prayer time, I said, Tiffany, I really believe this is for the whole church, that there's generational freedom that's going to be given to Frontier Church. And, you know, it's not always a physical assignment. It's not always something that plagues you so drastically. It could be your words. It could be how you treat your spouse. It's just like your, your dad or things that you've accepted is just the way I am because that's how I grew up. And I'm here to tell you, that's not it. That's not what God has for you. It's not what he has for you. And so um, this week, and I have a lot of faith sometimes. I could pray for people with migraine headaches, but I'd never accept it fully for myself. It was always somebody else was going to get free. Lots of faith for that. But I guess this is just one I got to deal with the rest of my life. So this week I told Christian I was really praying and I felt different on Sunday. But on Monday as I drove to work, I know the feeling of a migraine headache when it's coming. I just know. I just know. Before it hits my eye, I know. And I started to feel that. And it shook my faith shook my faith and the first thing I wanted to do was to lift my armrest in my car because that's where the medicine is I wanted to make sure I had a tablet ready if I needed it and I said no 
and I, I, I didn't look. I didn't open, I didn't open the armrest. And I said, no, I'm not going to look. I'm not going to look. And I started to pray in my prayer language, and it lifted. And it lifted. And I did it on Tuesday, and it lifted. And I haven't had a headache all week. Come on. And I don't want to be the poster boy for migraine headaches, but, but what I do want to be is the poster boy for freedom. Because freedom is freedom and it's what we were meant to have in life so if you've got and I really believe the ping part of the ping that I felt in worship today is that freedom is being given to Frontier Church at new levels and if there's been something that you've accepted in your person or in your situation or circumstances I'm going to challenge you don't accept it anymore. Don't just say that's just the way I am because it's not just the way you are, okay? And I can speak with faith in that realm as I'm walking out myself in that same way. And you have to contend for it. It takes trust. You have to contend for it. It's not gonna contend for it. But the word of God, it's so good. It's just kind of so good. So I won't say anymore. So here's what I think we should do in response. Um, I first want to just say, and this I know Bob so well and know his heart. What he's not saying is if you, if you have like significant medicine that your body needs to survive, we are not encouraging you to stop taking those meds. This was something he did in partnership with God's spirit. And it wasn't a life or death thing. So we want to put that in, in one sense. We're not trying to have people reject something like that and just out of a cavalier spirit at the same time don't miss this moment to partner with the testimony of how God is setting people free and healing bodies and where our bodies are aligning with the realities of heaven so if you're stirred whether it's migraines or just a breakthrough that is generational that something in your spirit is welling up I'm going to ask you to just stand so we can partner, and then we're all going to stand and partner with you. If there is something that you need to say, yes, this is something in my spirit, I want to stand and partner with this word. This resonates with me. I release this breakthrough, and I, I claim and agree by the declaration of my mouth that this aligns with my heart. Why don't you stand right now? Good. 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 It doesn't need to be everyone. I don't want this to be like everyone in the room stands. It can be a lot. <laughs> I don't. I want to. I want. I want those that specifically feel this words for them. Good. Now, if someone's close with you, stand, rise, and just lay a gentle hand on their shoulder if they're comfortable with that. And from that place, we're going to worship together. I know we went long. And so we are going to be officially done. But I don't want anyone to leave until, again, as we always say, until you're done letting the Holy Spirit work in you because I know he's not done here today. So the worship team's going to play. Uh, please go get your kids in the next 10 minutes. 
ministry team is going to be over here on this side today. They're probably not going to be released for a few minutes. I'm going to allow you guys, I want this to be a declaration that we are the body. Yes, we have ministry teams. Yes, you can always come forward for X, Y, and Z. I want you guys to feel freedom to do that today. But let this be a beautiful, profound, powerful moment in our history where we say as a body, we will live towards freedom. We will take the testimonies of those among us and we will partner with those and let them multiply in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Put that on your lips this morning.